0: episode, episode one of the My Zen Brain podcast, the podcast where I, your host, Andy, where I will talk to people about their experiences with my two areas of expertise, traumatic brain injury and alcoholism. And I will share from my own experience and uh, hopefully provide stories and accounts and musings and <clears throat> everything else that uh, the listener can say. I, I know exactly what what uh, what he's talking about. With this podcast I'm essentially employing one particular format of AA meetings which is sharing your story. It's a, uh, otherwise known as a speaker meeting. Sometimes this is referred to as tra- telling your drunkalog, which in my opinion is uh, it's a term I've always disliked because it, it's it's kinda like the the term Alcathon, which is a very unfortunate name given to a two day AA festivity held on New Year's Eve here in town, but to me the name Alcathon just smacks of like a three-day bender that culminates culminates in a trip to the ER, or maybe a road trip to Tijuana. Um, it just it sounds like this journeyman trek of of a three-day bender that is not for the week. And to me, uh, with my story anyway, the term drunk-a-log just doesn't do it. Doesn't get anywhere near so I would I thought with this the first episode I would share my story and why I'm doing this in the first place so when I was thinking about starting this podcast thinking about how I wanted to get this ball rolling uh, I threw up on the wall a few concepts That have held true for me in the 16 years since my traumatic brain injury, the last nine of which I have been sober. And the first one I came up with was the oh, so tired and cliche if I can do it, anyone can do it. Just no, okay? I'm better than that. The second concept is the only light, slightly. Less overused and overquoted sentiment John Lennon gave us when he said, "Life is what happens when you are making other plans," which is a profound, wise sentiment to be sure. But I'm pretty sure Lennon came up with it when he was in the middle of his peacenik Yoko Ono years in Manhattan, where getting stabbed in a mugging or suddenly wearing an air conditioning unit as a hat was a distinct possibility. Plus, it really doesn't get to the root and the reason why I have managed to stay sober for almost nine years. I have found that one thing far and away above any other guarantees that I will stay sober and avoid being the person who stumbled out of the wasteland of addiction eight years ago. It's an incredibly liberating concept, yet incredibly frustrating in its simplicity. It's the concept of self-forgiveness. If I come at the experience of this life with a kind heart and an open mind and a peaceful spirit in my relationship to myself, others, and the world at large, I know that I will stay sober. And if I do the same thing tomorrow... I'll probably stay sober tomorrow too. I think that precisely because I went without a kind heart and an open mind for many years after I sustained the traumatic brain injury that almost killed me. Beginning in early summer 2005 and for years afterwards, I awoke every morning with the insidious twin demons of self-pity and self-loathing that had taken control of my mind and they were giggling at the foot of my bed. (laughs) And I rode their chariot of doom like my hair was on fire as it plummeted to the bottom of my pit. And I did it all without a concern or a care for anyone else or anything. Those in recovery who are truly committed to it realize that after we have forgiven ourselves... For all of the horrible shit we did when we were drinking, when we leave it all behind, and once and for all, we can begin the work of constructing a new life in sobriety. You hear people in the program, people say all the time, if you don't know the date of your last drink, you'll drink again. Or if you don't make going to meetings your singular priority... Or you don't start your sobriety during the 90 meetings and 90 days trip. Or if you don't call your sponsor every day, then you'll drink again. It's pretty much all bullshit. And don't get me wrong, these are admonishments that are frequently given to newcomers in the program. And the person giving the advice usually has their heart in the right place. But for the most part... All the newcomer in AA needs is welcoming smiles and sympathetic faces from people who know their plight all too well. When I was in treatment, my counselor frequently, frequently commented that I was, quote, working a good program, unquote. Over time I re- realized that this meant that I was making the program of AA work for me. Over time I've over time I've come to realize that Alcoholics Anonymous over time, I've come to realize that working the program my way is to find the parts of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that work for me and leaving the rest for the birds. I mean, don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean, well, I, you know, I I, I took that whole, you know, never drinking thing and I, I altered it a little bit. You know, I, now I only drink on, you know, Sundays. No, it's, <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. And don't get me wrong, all those factors I mentioned before can be an important can be important integral parts of working a good focused program. But for me, right out of the gate, it dawned on me that I had to forgive myself, and you can pursue all the tricks and hacks available to you in recovery. but if you don't fundamentally forgive yourself for all the selfish manipulative, duplicitous bullshit that you committed when you were an active alcoholic, you don't stand a chance. But if you can do that, if you're able to muster enough mercy and clemency for the person you were when you were out there drinking, and this is the tricky part, if you can then set out the fragile, often perilous, meticulous task of building a life in sobriety, you can have that life. I've long thought that those in the program were quite fortunate in a twisted way to have AA meetings because if someone regularly held my boss is a jack off anonymous meetings or my husband is a moron anonymous meetings, you'd have record turnout. <laughs> I I guess to you normies out there this is just referred to as having friends but even that situation of having and keeping friends can baffle the alcoholic new sob- to new to sobriety since chances are good that in our drinking and partying lives before we hung them up the friends we had weren't really friends a drinking buddy will pick you up from the drunk tank the morning after you partied like rock stars But they are conspicuously absent the moment you realize that maybe you are dancing with the devil and you should start thinking about getting sober. I had the further twisted good fortune of having the TBI, the traumatic brain injury, so I've had to forgive myself on a daily basis for 15 years for getting sick, so I'm used to that. And as with the bacterial meningitis, that led to my classification as a traumatic brain injury survivor. With alcoholism, it's literally something that just happened. But unlike the TBI, with alcoholism, there was something I could do about it. I fell ill in spring 2005. Budget constraints forced me out of my first professional writing gig. And for four years, I had served as the lone staff writer for a News Weekly. I had been writing regularly in some capacity since I was 13 years old when I started keeping a journal. I had edited and contributed prose and poetry to my high school literary magazine. I had a stint writing product copy for an outdoor gear manufacturer I had worked for. So when I was hired at the News Weekly... It was a dream come true. The fact that I had to supplement my income with bartending only fed my perception, my self-perception, as the struggling writer making it work. I reported on the news at the city, state, national, and community levels. I wrote profiles. I reviewed bands and films. And the hobby that I'd started as a preteen was now my occupation. And I might as well have been writing for the Village Voice or the Chicago Reader. I was so into it. As a reporter, I learned about people. And I listened to their stories and told their stories to the world. Politicians and media stars, volunteers, cops, convicts, grieving war widows, community leaders... I documented the experience of all these capillaries of life, and I I had entered my chosen field as an unpaid intern working for a small business. And so, in short, I had become a writer, quote-unquote, and I had done it my way. So when the paper laid me off, I went full-time bartending, and my plan was to parlay that experience into another reporting job or a position in public relations or marketing or something again. One night, I went to my bartending job with what an x-ray the day before had revealed to be the worst sinus infection my doctor had ever seen. I was popping Sudafed like sweethearts, and I soldiered, th- excuse me, soldiered through my shift at the bar, went home, ate my antibiotics, and hung my head over a stealing bowl of water. And that's the last thing I remember until about three weeks later when my conscious mind came back online in the intensive care unit. Infected sinuses are pay dirt for bacterial meningitis cooties, and it turns out that the type of bacteria feasting on my prefrontal cortex was resistant to a lot of antibiotics and the infection was able to make its way to the meninges of the brain, where it formed an abscess, which put enough pressure on my brain that my whole body pretty much started to just shut down, and I went into respiratory arrest. Meanwhile, a series of small strokes peppered my brain, and in the words of the neurosurgeon, I might as well have gone through the windshield of a car. One of the strokes severely damaged the optic nerve in my left eye and the rest caused myriad deficiencies in the executive functions of memory, information processing, processing speed, planning, anger and aggression, and impulse control. And most important, I guess, was my ability to, I'm sorry, my inability to resist short-term gratification at the expense of long-term goals. TBIs are usually an affliction suffered by soldiers and pro-athletes as just another possibility of daily life or they're the result of car accidents and construction accidents. A concussion is a form of mild TBI and many people suffer the direct effects of just one concussion for the rest of their lives. My TBI was the result of a pretty mundane pedestrian yet fluke occurrence that all my doctors said I was a miracle for surviving, but what was otherwise a pretty humdrum hospital stay. I mean, the neurosurgeon opened my head, cleaned a bunch of gunk off the top of my brain, then stapled my head back shut, and everybody in my life commenced a waiting game to see if I emerged from the sickness no worse for wear or you know, an eggplant. I, w- I was home after a little over a month and somewhere in that thick fog of early TBI recovery, excuse me, the better angels of my nature made a pact that they would tell me about later, but kept it under wraps at the beginning. And that was that suicide was not an option anymore under any circumstances for the remainder of my life. I mean, I, I had survived which, in my mind, meant that I just fundamentally wasn't done with this life yet. And yet, tragically, or ironically, or ironically tragic, or tragically ironic, was the path I followed in the years hence. During that first summer at home, I also met with a neuropsychologist who uh, to assess the damage. And among the battery of tests was an IQ test which revealed a significant drop in my IQ. I didn't even know what that meant. All I knew of IQ tests is that they were some kind of barometer of intellectual prowess and I was pretty sure that a big drop in IQ points, pu- excuse me, in IQ points meant that I was a lot dumber than I had been before I got sick. And along with the drop in IQ, I picked up a stutter, which I have largely compensated for by relearning how to talk, but which takes over anyway if I am overly tired, overly stressed, plustered, angry, really overly anything. Um, and on an emotional level, the rewiring of my brain yielded periodic and a couple times over the years dire incidents of depression and I'm um, in chronic anxiety. In layman's terms, the disease took out of my deck all the aces and most of the face guards, shuffled it, and then dealt me the crappiest poker hand imaginable. (laughs) And I fell squarely into the sweetly, sick, insidious arms of alcoholism. I walked through a desperate alcoholic wasteland, essentially trying to finish what meningitis had started. I just didn't realize at the time that I was doing that. Such is the mind of the practicing alcoholic. Before I got sick, I had been engaged to a lovely woman. We were two kids in our 20s, starting professional lives. We rented a house with two dogs, Thunder, who we adopted together and only had three legs, and Kilgore, the border collie, who had been my partner for many years since I adopted him from a shelter in Seattle. The dog who, after I returned from the hospital never left my side border collies are arguably the smartest breed of dog out there and i'm pretty sure that an incident shortly after i returned home convinced the old boy that he shouldn't stray too far from me one night immediately after the especially i guess arduous task of goes- going to the bathroom i fainted i just hit the deck like a sack of potatoes <laughs> I came to with Kilgore sniffing me to assess that I, if I was dead or not. He was my wingman every stage of my recovery. And that first month when I was home, a thick blanket of heat and humidity awaited me whenever I walked him. And when he was off leash, he would trot out maybe 10 to 20 yards ahead of me to sniff and explore and then promptly came back to walk at my side. A mile walk would completely drain me, and when we returned home, I would treat him to a piece of hot dog or a slice of cheese, and myself to a three-hour nap. And amidst the many visits to doctors, I tallied recurring visits to 13 doctors post-brain surgery. I decided that dog walking at an area shelter would be a good way for me to build up my strength and endurance, and that time walking dogs also gave me time to think about everything and i'm sure a psychological evaluation at that time would have revealed significant PTSD. ptsd because i was only aware in the most raw sense of that word of what was happening around me in any given instant walking dogs and living in their world their reality was such a joy and in my weak state Just walking a Wattweiler or tossing a tennis ball for a lab or just sitting on the floor of a kennel with a shy and timid wiener dog. I just, I found myself sinking into the harmonious world of just being with another sentient being. I tried to show these dogs that who had had a similar jolt to their reality. And found themselves in living in a situation, I'm sorry, in a shelter and walking with strangers that life isn't always cruel and harsh, and that goodness and kindness are just as present in the world as the horrors. Plus, it was just plain fun. I mean, uh, you know, come on, most of the time people walking dogs don't have a frown or a scowl on their face. Um, Dogs live completely in the moment. And they're the the living embodiment of Zen. They live for right now and nothing more. And at that time, at that particular moment in my life, the only thing I really had the mental capacity to comprehend, to truly understand, was the present moment. The way things are right now. And that's the lesson of Zen. Perhaps the most frustrating, angering, despair-inducing reality that those who have had a TBI for a good long while must accept is that it takes years grinding it out in recovery from a TBI before you really start to see lasting, sustained improvements. And the lion's share of those improvements come, at least in my experience, through diligence, persistence, patience, And a lot of work. At the time, I could see six inches in front of my face and not much else. And I started drinking a lot. Before I got sick, I had for years been a happy, functional alcoholic. I didn't get drunk every day, but I did drink every day. And post-brain surgery, I started drinking to get drunk every single night. Six months after I got sick... And after only a few couples counseling sessions, the lovely woman dumped me and I moved into a janky little one-bedroom apartment where I rode out the next few years with my dog, the twins, self-pity and self-loathing, who seemed to be getting bigger every day. And my alcoholism just juiced up the demons like steroids. Uh, Instead of making sense of this new brain and of embarking on the long journey of figuring out what exactly it could and couldn't do now, I just threw in the towel after that first meeting with the neuropsychologist. As highfalutin and as elitist as it sounds, and it does sound elitist, I had always taken pride in the fact that I rarely had to exert much effort to excel in school. Creative writing had come naturally to me since adolescence and I was blessed with an above average intellect that had resulted in a promising academic career that may have even led me to advanced degrees and sound financial prospects with not a whole lot of effort on my part. Instead, the Herculean task of learning who the new person I was post-TBI And what he was capable of off the table before I even gave it a chance. I mean, eight years later, I was 10 days into an inpatient rehab program in O'Neill, Nebraska, when I had my first moment of clarity in which I realized how badly I had screwed my life up. within the first six months of sobriety I embraced the program of AA because I didn't have any other choice <laughs> I had given the old college try to try to obliterate my new brain since as far as I was concerned I hadn't asked for it I didn't want it and I certainly had absolutely no interest in living with it so I would just Try and take care of that last part myself. But as it turned out, I had something in common with millions of A- other AAers around the world in that I was sick and tired of being sick and tired of myself, of my lot in life, and mostly of living without hope. The volunteer gig turned into a paid position at the shelter and I spent spent those first few years living in that first janky apartment working with dogs escalating my alcohol consumption and not much else <laughs> during that time I met and dated then moved in with a woman whom I met while working at that first animal care job and I lived with her and her 3-year-old son and eventually her preteen daughter And Meanwhile, I switched from the shelter to working overnights at a pet hotel, and she was just the enabler I needed. Working overnights meant that I rarely came into contact with more than a half a dozen people all day, and my alcoholism really kicked into fifth gear. I got drunk at family gatherings until I started to miss them altogether, and it was at that point that my parents had had enough and cut me out of their lives completely because they couldn't watch me destroy my own, which in my alcoholic mind was just fine since it ultimately meant that all I had to worry about was work and drinking and occasionally my girlfriend, who was coping with her own host of personal and emotional issues, making her no stranger to the drink herself at the time. But my drinking vastly outpaced hers. And eventually she had had enough of my antics uh, after I started drinking on my days off, of course, as soon as I woke up until late into the night. She kicked me out of our place and dropped most of my possessions on my parents' front porch, And already at the end of their rope, my parents informed me that I could either go to rehab on their dime or I was on my own. And just to give you an idea where I was at, I thought about it. (laughs) I was at my bottom. I was completely defeated. I had literally nowhere else to go. And here were these people throwing me a life preserver. And I had to convince myself that maybe, just maybe, I wasn't a completely lost cause yet. Valley Hope operates uh, multiple treatment facilities all over the country. And the founders chose O'Neill, I remain convinced, because of its solitude. And because some sick bastard in the Valley Hope front office saw that O'Neill's slogan, the Irish capital of Nebraska printed right there on the sign outside the town of 3,600 people would make a great place for people to dry out. All kidding aside, uh, I loved, uh, the resources and the counseling staff at Valley hope. Uh, it was a great experience for me and, uh, I, I owe you guys the world. Um, so yeah, anyway, um, An alcoholic who finds themselves in O'Neill where the biggest attraction is the six lane bowling alley will often, as I did, have that moment of clarity where really been given all the time in the world to ponder what exactly they'd done to wind up here. When I graduated from the Valley Hope Day 28, I'm sorry, 28 day program, I faced two options. The first option was moving into my parents' basement at 37 years old. And the second was a three-quarters house, which is like a halfway house, but with fewer restrictions. So along with keeping up with your required anonymous meetings, whether it be AA, NA, uh, codependence, anonymous, you get the idea. You must have a job. You must mark your food in the communal kitchen with a Sharpie. You must adhere to a curfew and tend to weekly household chores like upkeep of the kitchen or mowing the yard. And when it came to TV time, it was first come, first served. So control of the remote on the TVs in the house was dictated by seniority. So whoever had been watching TV the longest controlled the remote until they relinquished it. There was two TVs, and I had ten roommates, all of them strangers. So I'm a pretty hardcore introvert to begin with, so I started reading a lot, mainly biographies. Andy Andrews, in his biography speeches, uh, talks about how when he was at the lowest point in his life, uh, living uh, on a pier, I believe, in uh, alabama he got a library card and immersed himself in biographies he wanted to understand the minds of successful people because how many biographies have you read by the marginally competent and miserable failures (laughs) Uh, i graduated from Loyola loyola university chicago during the golden era of the chicago bulls pro basketball team and i have become fascinated by their head coach phil jackson Whose nickname was the Zen Master, and his seemingly flawless management of the huge presences of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and Dennis Rodman. Jackson had somehow managed these three massive egos and parlayed them into many NBA championships. And so his books led me to other books and magazines and movies about Buddhism. And my whole life I have really leaned into any new interest so I was becoming versed in the language and the perspectives of the AA doctrine and the AA community. And meanwhile, I learned about the spiritual path of the Buddha. And one night in a meeting I mentioned that I may have found the missing spiritual manifestation of my program. And after the meeting a friend told me about the book The Zen of Recovery. And as I read it the program of Alcoholics Anonymous started making sense. As I noted earlier, and like millions of people before and after me, my life on the spiritual plane in the program started with the knowledge that, yes, I believe there is a force that created the universe, and no, I'm not it. I certainly saw the necessity of a spiritual aspect in my recovery from alcoholism, and for years I had been classing, classifying myself As an untheist, I didn't believe in God, and I did not believe in God. The existence of God didn't really affect how I lived my life, and that was the extent of my theology. I was raised Catholic, and I attended Catholic school for 16 years, grade school, high school, and college, and... Uh, Growing up Catholic and learning and living the the Jesuit concepts of of being a man for others, a a person who incorporated compassion and empathy and mercy into into their personal dogma was how I had been taught to live my life. And for the most part, I stuck with it. And now the actual belief system of Catholicism and Christianity as a whole, that Jesus was God... And he worked miracles, and he died after being nailed to a wooden cross uh, from the dead three days later. Yeah, I just couldn't get on board with that. For most of my adult life, and my personal theology, I threw up my hands. God was a concept too big to think I even had a birthright to ponder. So I never tried to discern the place for the concept of God within the program of AA, specifically because of Bill Wilson's admonition in the third of the 12 steps to make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. That last clause is crucial to the all-inclusive nature of AA, and that last word, him, if you change it to it and repeat the phrase, Over to the care of God as we understood it Suddenly you truly have an all-inclusive program And quite honestly I think the primary reason It has persevered in the 90 years Since Bill and Dr. Bob first hatched the idea Let me get this out of the way I'm not an expert on anything I have no letters after my name no certified qualifications of any kind well i do have a certification from a vocational rehab program as a sheet metal apprentice but all that means is i'm a couple hair more couple hairs more qualified than you to climb a ladder two stories to drill holes in houses i am however a homeschooled brain injury warrior Brain injury survivors refer to themselves often as warriors because warriors, whether the Japanese shogun or the four-star general, decide to make combat their life's work. And brain injury survivors know this to be 100% true, although no brain injury survivor ever chose that label for themselves, just as no one ever grows up thinking, I'm going to be an alcoholic someday. And that doesn't happen. (laughs) One of my favorite sayings in the program is AA is the club with millions of members, none of which wanted to join. Every brain injury is different and living with the aftermath of a brain injury is a uniquely solitary affair because you are essentially getting to know a brand new brain and its related mind. And you are doing it all by yourself because no one really knows the rules that your new brain mind duo plays by better than you brain injury warriors must conceive and nurture their own habits and adjustments and adaptations to the idiosyncrasies of their life that they design for themselves it's a rule book that evolves over time has a lot of rules that make no sense and are for a game that very likely uh, will have a different set of rules tomorrow it's like american football one day australian football the next day And over the last several years, I have become slightly obsessed with learning as much as I can about the human brain and how it affects the human mind and body, and vice versa. One of the core tenets of Buddhism is the belief in no self, which is to say it's the belief that nothing stays the same moment to moment, and that is nowhere more apparent than in our own minds and bodies. Newly sober, I became fascinated with the idea that independent of my own perception was the ultimate perception. The Tao, the way things really are, independent of whatever warped, twisted, distorted view of reality I brought to the table. I had my own reality that I saw through the eyes of the recovering alcoholic brain injury warrior, but that wasn't the ultimate reality. That wasn't the the real nature of the way things are which mirrors the Buddhist principle of right view. Right view means seeing reality and reacting to reality skillfully. So, newly sober and newly aware of how much suffering I had endured and subjected my loved ones to, I was thirsty for a way to make sense of it, to proceed now that I recognized it. The Buddha taught that the first noble truth is life is suffering. And the second noble truth is that suffering is caused by desire. For nearly a decade, I had taken on the chin nearly every loss you can imagine possible in my life up till that point. I had a promising career ahead of me before this world took it away. I had a fiancé and the ordeal an aftermath of the sickness took her away. and my health, physical and mental, and meningitis took it away. I had my family, and alcoholism took them away. I had caused suffering in the lives of everyone around me, and I could not have cared less, because I was consumed with the desire for numbness, the desire for oblivion, the third noble truth of Buddhism is that there is a way to end the, end the desire that causes us suffering. And that way, the Eightfold Path adheres to the simple idea that if we skillfully follow the middle way in eight specific areas of our lives, like speech, conduct, livelihood, and effort, we will achieve happiness. We will not only see and recognize the beauty and poetry of this life, we will in fact be the beauty and the poetry of this life. Through various types of meditation, we honor the three jewels of Buddhism, which is the Buddha himself, the Dharma, or his teachings about the true nature of reality, and the Sangha, shorthand for a community of like-minded people. That first book, The Zen of Recovery, detailed how the 12 steps of AA were in fact in perfect sync with Buddhism, and that turned over the ignition on my spiritual journey. So shortly after I moved into the Three-Quarters house, around the time I read The Zen of Recovery, I moved into my own room, and I started meditating almost every day. My meditation altar was an upturned cardboard box with a candle on it. And I meditated and I continued to go to AA meetings and I started to acknowledge the the presence of the elephant in the room that I wasn't thinking or talking about. During those eight years I spent a wash in alcoholism, the thought of writing again was laughable. My mind had convinced me that because of the scrambled eggs I had for a brain now, I shouldn't even bother finding out. The truth is... I was terrified that my circuitry had gone so haywire that what would come out was mediocrity or worse. To learn that meningitis had completely stolen the ability to make the written word into something amusing or informative or insightful again scared the holy crap out of me. I hadn't written more than a dozen pages since I got sick because having that revelation that writing well was definitely... Not my bag anymore. That would have driven me into a pit so deep you don't come out of it. It swallows you. But I had to know if things were different now that I had willingly and thankfully given up booze. So I started writing a blog. And over time I found that not only can I still write, but in some ways I am i think I'm a better writer than I've ever been. Some of that comes with age, but a good chunk I owe to my water slide plunge into Hal's kitchen and climbing back to health of mind and body. In ways that haven't even become clear yet, and during the ordeal of the life I led immediately after the brain injury was, has yielded a perspective I would have never had otherwise. I joined a group of creative people on Facebook that, was started by an author who wrote books about moving to upstate New York to raise and train dogs. And my blog received enough of a smattering of a positive feedback that I kept doing it. And since you write what you know, it was a blog in the old school definition of the blog. a personal experienced blog where I haphazardly told the story of my recovery in real time but i never gave anything close to all of my time to it if there's one thing i have done faithfully and almost without interruption since i was 12 years old it's i worked since my paper out in 7th grade i right up until 2 days after i'm sorry 2 days before i went to rehab i worked at a dog daycare immediately before and immediately after And periodic posts on the blog gave me the creative outlet I needed while I basically spent seven years descending down the ladder of occupational stressors I could handle. (laughs) One of the things I've learned definitively in 16 years is that I don't do well with coworkers, deadlines, or multitasking. (laughs) I can still handle, nay, excel at many of the Tasks involving any everything from new computer software to medication documentation to feeding and walking an aggressive Wattweiler. I just can't promise that any of those tasks will be accomplished today or to anybody else's liking but mine. And coming from a TBI coming back from a TBI mirrors the process of coming back to a meaningful life in sobriety. Over time, countless people have fallen prey to that most insidious factor in the mind of the person new to recovery. To quote Freddie Mercury, we want it all and we want it now. And it doesn't work like that. I've seen many, many people burn out quickly in recovery after the phenomena of the pink cloud wears off and one is staring down the barrel of filling their days and their nights with something, anything besides boozing. In my case, seeing any progress at all in those early days after the TBI was sideswiped by the train of alcoholism that was moving three times as fast and with ten times the ferocity as the slow, steady pace of recovery from the TBI. Many, many nights I spent fighting back tears and letting tears flow like the Mississippi when sharing at AA meetings. At first, I thought I just had years of pen up emotions flowing out of me, but somewhere, somewhere along the way, I learned that anxiety and depression often go hand, I'm sorry, go hand in hand for the TBI survivor and the recovering alcoholic alike. Not only are we dealing with the expectations, reasonable and un- unreasonable alike, but all of them real, of therapists and our friends and our families and our coworkers, But we also have residual expectations of our former selves and some of us even manage to convince ourselves that maybe, just maybe, we will someday get back to the person we were before our injury. I shed enough tears to drown an elephant and I began to truly understand that recovery from the TBI and recovery from alcohol addiction are marathons, not sprints. And there is never an end to the race. Ever. After a year and a half at the Three-Quarters House, I lived with the man I've known since we were freshmen in high school. In fact, it was him that I first got drunk with when we swiped the bottle of Dewar's Scotch from my parents' liquor cabinet. And he got sober when he was 19 years old, and I ran into him outside a meeting house, 14 years later when I was still behind, wet behind the ears in sobriety and we rekindled the friendship that had ceased when we were in college and he even served as my sponsor briefly before I moved in with him and after the three quarters house so after a couple of years living with him I met quartered and then moved in with Kim a woman 14 years my senior Hey, the heart wants what the heart wants, okay? Um, My reading obsession had stayed the same after the Three-Quarters House, and I read The Case Against Sugar by Gary Tobes after Tobes did an interview on my favorite podcast. And that led to books like Grain Brain and Brain Maker and Spark, The Evolutionary New Science of Exercise in the Brain. And I began my quest to learn as much as I could about how nutrition, exercise, intermittent fasting, playing an instrument, meditation, and most importantly, connection to others, benefits our brains and thus our minds. And as I read up on the brain itself, so too did I begin my journey learning about the mind. In Buddhist doctrine, we actually have six senses, not the usual five. We have the usual five, but we also have the mind. And the idea that the human brain and the human mind are vastly different things, and the illusory nature of the duality of our minds, and the belief that no one thing exists in and of itself, but instead everything and everyone are connected. All these concepts I found intriguing. So along with the books about the brain, I read books about the brain as it relates to the mind. I watched TED Talks that pertain to the brain and the mind. Even I, I even bought a digital piano after I saw a TED Talk about the positive effects of excuse me of playing a musical instrument has on the brain. I had taken piano lessons for seven years as a kid before I made one of the dumbest decisions of my life. And as I've exemplified, I have made quite a few. I quit piano to play freshman football when I got to high school. (laughs) All the while, I was absorbing books about Buddhism and continuing uh, daily meditation practice. And I changed occupations twice more and was working as a janitor when that relationship ground to a halt. But my quest to learn about the brain and the mind were usurped by once again the need to make money, as switching out jobs two times meant also in also swallowing two pay cuts. But an idea I had started forming the idea that I rename my blog and start a podcast. I wanted to tell other people in recovery from alcoholism and traumatic brain injury the things I was learning. I wanted to jumpstart the interviewing skills I had developed as a reporter and talk to other survivors and hear their stories and find out what they were doing to keep on keeping on. And most important, I wanted to prove to myself that I could still handle complicated tasks like absorbing and mastering the technical aspects of starting a podcast, like podcast providers and learning new software and learning about web hosts, and i i wanted to prove to myself and to the world i guess that even though i was damaged goods and i that i was not the idiot simpleton i had told myself of that i was every day many times a day as an act of i'm sorry an active alcoholic Meanwhile, I parlayed my experience as a caregiver from caring for dogs to caring for people last year when I started at an assisted living house for developmentally disabled adults. I still go to meetings, almost exclusively ones that have a Buddhist or meditation slant. I continue to devour books about Buddhism, nutrition, exercise, and the brain. And in my own life... uh, Largely thanks to the pandemic, I took on a daily exercise practice, a thrice daily meditation practice, and what is becoming a daily yoga practice. Not every day, but I'm getting there. I have accepted my mental deficiencies, uh, incorporated my mental fragilities into my life, and really stabilized all this with my meditation practice. I stayed sober because I want to continue to progress physically and emotionally and mentally and spiritually because, as Socrates said, an unexamined life is not worth living. I'm, I'm, I'm also discovering curiosity again, hearing the stories of others in recovery from alcoholism and TBI by sharing in that experience and and relaying that experience to other survivors on a on a grand scale will hopefully contribute to a sense of community and connection for myself and for my audience i'm interested in talking to people one-on-one and getting the long-form version of how they've managed the saying goes that because any person you come into contact with may be dealing with problems well beyond your pay grade. You should probably back off in general and be kinder, be better, be a couple of percentage points more compassionate than you were yesterday. In sobriety, I've discovered my life has become about small incremental improvements in compassion and empathy, valuable skills. When you're working with those who can't help themselves at an assisted living home. But also in truly appreciating and finding the humor, if it's there, in the intriguing engaging tales of those who have been beaten, bruised, and bloody and then went back to their corner to re- to regroup and came out swinging again. One of my favorite lines is from a video by uh, the retired Navy SEAL Jocko Willicks. Uh, it's on YouTube. You can find it. Uh, it's called Good. And he says, if if you can say the word good, well, it means you're still alive. It means you've still got some fight in you. And I've learned in sobriety that it is a fight to wake up every day with the 800-pound gorilla of addiction, having a coffee and reading the paper in the corner of my bedroom, and the pterodactyl of my TBI sitting on my head with his talons dug in, but it's a damn sight better than the alternative. Sobriety and the TBI have recalibrated my outlook and my ambition and my worldview. My meditation practice reminds me to live in this moment right now, to bring my attention here, talking to you about Everything that has happened to this meat sack that I, quote unquote, look around every day. Before I got sober, I was generally a happy person with no real concern that I was going to succeed, but also with no real concern that I was neglecting a very real, very significant part of my life that I have cultivated and nourished in sobriety. My spirituality was really the missing component in my life, and Zen Buddhism makes the most sense for me since Zen Buddhism is really all about living for this moment because this moment is all you will ever have. The past is the past, and it is incidental, just as the future never really arrives. The future is arriving now, right now. And you can be chugging along one day, working your job, and living your life, and suddenly, without warning, you're in a hospital bed fighting for your life. And sometimes you get to keep living your life, but it bears little resemblance to the reality of just a few days or weeks before, and you can never go back to that way of being again. 16 years into this journey, I've discovered that sometimes you don't want to, and you definitely don't need to, because as the saying goes, you got death and taxes coming. My life now is radically different from the life before my TBI, and radically different from the life after the TBI, but before I got sober. Is that the life I would have chosen for myself, the life that turned out the way that I had every reason to believe I wanted? Far from it. One man got sick, and another man laid on the bed they rolled out of the operating room. But really, one man wrote that last sentence, and another man is writing this one. Life is fluid. It's never fixed. The world around us and the world inside us is changing every moment. And I found that every person in our lives... And every feeling we have and every thought that gallops through our minds and gallops right out again, we control all of it and we control none of it. I'll close with a verse from the Diamond Sutra, a teaching of the Buddha. So you you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. So that's it. Um, My script. So there you have it. I invite you to go to the My Zen Brain blog, which I have not been keeping up with at all in many months, but I will tend to in due time. I will eventually have articles and links to the TED Talk about musical instruments I mentioned, uh, links to other articles, and eventually book reports on the stuff I have read so far that I think would be beneficial to those in recovery from TBI and alcoholism. Episode 2 is forthcoming, but I have been sitting on this audio gear for uh, a few months now, so... (laughs) I figured I should get something out there to show the people that bought the audio gear that I am putting it to good use. Um, And once again, thank you. Thank you for tuning in. And as the late Robin Williams says in my all-time favorite movie, Dead Poets Society, until next time, keep your head about you.